If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. We are very excited to have another author with us today, Patricia Eagle. She's the author of Being Mean, a memoir of sexual abuse and survival. So welcome to our podcast today, Patricia. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So would love to just dive into your new book that was just recently released. Thank you for sending me a copy. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, just it's interesting how you have decided at this point in your life to put out this story about your own life where it sounds like you'd been writing for many years as an author of other people's stories. Is that right? It is. I did that as a in a career as a life cycle celebrant. And that is somebody that creates meaningful ceremonies uh, with ritual and story for people who have died. So mm. I do it for memorials or funerals and also mm. for couples that are getting married. Mm. And to, to create, a, excavate somebody's life and create our lives and a meaningful story required insight and experience that I loved doing, but I realized that I I really wanted to do that for my own life as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, because I recognized that there were things that I felt more comfortable with keeping quiet mm-hmm. and silent. Mm-hmm. And I started feeling that if I did that, how could I ask others to tell me their real life stories or families to tell me the real life story of someone that had died mm-hmm. when I was unwilling to do that myself. And and I'll just add that one of the reasons why I have learned that it's so important is that one, <laughs> we can't really help one another if we stay hidden. I mean, if there are things in our lives, which for me would be sexual abuse, and then the consequences of that, how I live my life. If we really want to help others and we stay hidden, then we're not sharing what I've heard called authentic vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So I felt like that I needed to do that. I also have come to learn that we can't change what we refuse to talk about. So Isn't there were true? things that started feeling like we really need to change in our culture and in our world. Mm-hmm. And that I was complicit along with the rest of the culture mm. by not not talking openly. Yeah. So, so it's like you had this, this story underneath that no one knew about. And so it didn't feel That's authentic. And, and, and you saw how our culture needed change and it needed change through authentic vulnerability and being your real self. So that's sort of what inspired exactly. you to, to tell your own story. That's that's really courageous. Yeah, sort of. Um, you know, like the emperor without any clothes, just getting naked by telling all my 
story, my secret, which I really feel, especially in I live in a small town <laughs> where at this point I, I've heard over 60 books have been sold, which may not sound like a lot, but in a town mm. my size, which is 10,000. So that's not, okay. uh, you know, it's not an extremely small town, but it's small enough that I never leave my house without seeing someone yeah. I know. So you live in rural Colorado. So when you walk out of your Correct. door, everyone knows you and they knew you wrote this book at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And, and it, there are people I don't know who approach me and tell me they've read my book. And mm. and I stand there and think, wow, they know all of these things about mm-hmm, me now. Mm-hmm. Was it worth it, and though? Do you feel like, you know, as vulnerable oh, yeah. as it was? Good, good. Well, tell us a little bit about your memoir, Being Mean is the title. Tell us, you know, a little bit of what it's about, what the title means, just kind of how that journey has been for you. Well, first I'll say again, it was absolutely worth it to write it. I don't have a doubt. It doesn't mean I haven't had challenges because, as you know, I mean, with your podcast, Nicole and Mary, um, there's a lot of sexual abuse that's occurred and unfortunately, unfortunately still occurs So my book is a memoir about that, sexual Mm -hmm. abuse and survival. And the important thing to note is that the subtitle is survival, which is really three quarters of the book. I know child sex abuse is devastating. And although I I know I careened through through life, as you found if you read the book, I finally found the courage to to free my voice and release that shame Mm. that you mentioned earlier and quit hiding that I mentioned. And then most importantly, to live fully. So I listened to some of your podcasts in the last few days. And, and you know, my story is it helps others see just one way mm-hmm. that abuse happens because there are so many. And how an experience like that can negatively affect someone's life. I do like to mention that being mean is what my mother called masturbation. And that's what my father and I did from my age of four until I was 13. As I grew older, I started to suspect that what we were doing was was wrong. It took a long time to realize that. And then I, I began to blame myself for the times that I had with my dad mm. because my mom also blamed me. And so being mean developed another meaning and that was that I became very hard and mean, mm-hmm. hard on myself and mean to myself. Uh, I became very good at self-sabotaging mm-hmm. behavior, you know, having an opportunity and then messing it up because it reinforced that I wasn't worthy. So that is three quarters of the book showing how I began that pattern of self sabotage and being mean, the consequences of self-abuse. But that led into developing a survival muscle and then learning how to flex that muscle until I was able to come to a place that wasn't just surviving, but, but was beyond surviving. It was feeling joy in life, as some people call thriving. That's a little nutshell view of my book. Yeah. And how about um, just if you can unpack a little bit of your story for our listeners who most of them, I would say, are also survivors and um, 
you know, we like you said, we all have our stories. We're all abused by different types and groomed in different ways. And our coping is all different. As Mary has said recently at one of our speaking engagements that our coping, we don't choose our, our unhealthy coping. It often chooses us. And so, you know, we all have our, our stories are all different, but I think it helps to hear you know, from another survivor, just to know that we're not alone in some of those ways, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of kind of what you've gone through and and then how it mm-hmm. had affected you, you know, leading up to current day. I mean, how old are you now, if I can ask? I, you sure can. I'm 67. Yeah. And so okay. how has that... How has that um, affected, you know, through the seasons of life and the different decades of being silent and and then being able to share? Because healing's lifelong. So I'm sure even now that shame pops up and all of that. So just would love to hear a little, you know, of your backstory and um, and how that's kind of brought you to today. I am happy that I made it to mm-hmm. 67. I am too. Very happy. And I'm also happier than I've ever been in my life. Mm. And I'm sorry it took so long, but I'm glad I'm here. Mm, me too. And that's why another reason I wanted to free my voice and get it out there. Mm. As I hear I've done in my book from people that have read it, so that others might be able to make some different choices along yeah. the way than I did, if they're able to, and even remember things if they're able to. Yes. that I did. I'll, I'll do a little bit of the trajectory. I'm actually, I just put my book in my hand and I'm looking, mm-hmm. flipping through it. I thought it was interesting. I didn't realize until my birthday this year that I have 67 stories in my book. And I oh. went, oh, great. 67, oh, wow. 67 stories. Interesting. I love serendipity. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I didn't write them chronologically, but that's how I ended up putting them. I didn't originally think I would do that in my book, but I did do that because it, it certainly helped to make more sense. Yeah. So the quarter of, of the book that I mentioned that was around sexual abuse is, is telling some very detailed stories of what happened and, and how uh, I think the most important thing that comes up in those stories is how I learned to not trust myself mm. um, and also that how I learned sexual pleasure mm. and that I became a compulsive masturbator as a young child, and a lot of children do, mm-hmm. but I had associations with it that weren't healthy. And what that ended up doing was turning me into a, a young teenager that was desperate for love and sex, mm. which I felt like by then I thought, well, if I'm having sex with a boy, that's that's good. Mm. That's, you know, it's not, it's not my dad. This is good. But I, I found out that I equated sex with love, which isn't really always the case, especially mm-hmm. at 15. Absolutely. And right. my behavior led me to think I was pregnant at 15, but I wasn't. I mm. was at 18. Mm. And at 18, I had managed to get into college, which was really amazing. Just I had not been encouraged to go. I'd been told I couldn't go. I had to stay at home, but I figured out ways to get there, to get grants, to get in. Mm -hmm. I had helpful friends and I was so proud of myself. It was one of those things where I was on the roller coaster of managing to do something good for myself and then self-sabotaging. And although it wasn't totally me alone when I got pregnant at 18 and abortion was illegal, Mm. 
I didn't know who the father was at the time, and that's a story in itself. But I wasn't going to let it derail my dreams. The fathers showed very little concern, and so I knew I was on my own, and I just steamrolled toward uh, an illegal abortion. That was a very, very difficult experience and Mm -hmm. something that I hope that no other young girls have to go through, especially with very little support. Mm-hmm. That then catapulted me further into just, oh, shame and, and blame. And and I did end up marrying the boyfriend that I thought I was pregnant with at 15. And it wasn't a situation that was really helpful. He It was an open marriage. And, and that just further... <laughs> put me in a place of thinking that I wasn't worthy. I married yeah. someone that was always interested in being with other women and, and then ended up being with other women. Mm. I left him and just continued on that track. We divorced. Uh, I would get a grant for a master's, flub it up within six months, mm. get pregnant with somebody else, you know, mm. do an at-home abortion, get pregnant again, have a legal abortion that's excruciating because mm. it was twins. And I didn't later think I was pregnant again. I probably was. Had an IUD put in to induce an abortion. Uh, just, yeah, I just think at tumultuous. One point, one point in the book, the way I put it, I'm looking for it because it, it mm-hmm. seems to explain things so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, better than sometimes that I can do it. <laughs> it's like I colluded with destiny by ramming myself repeatedly into confusing experiences, yeah. all while trying to hit the G spot of instantaneous self-comprehension and self-acceptance. Mm, you were just so on this I, long journey of just trying to find who the real Patricia was. Well, and also what it was within me that kept me locked into Mm. a place of feeling that I didn't have value. When I got to a place where I might feel a little value, like I received a grant at the University of Northridge, California, Northridge, I messed it up, like I said, within months. Or And then I got a job teaching, which was a good, I'd taught before. And, Mm -hmm. uh, And just to give you an idea of how I would mess or come close to messing things up. I was teaching in a high school for pregnant teenagers, interestingly, Mm -hmm. in California. That was before they allowed pregnant teens to come be integrated into the schools. Mm -hmm. And one morning I took acid Mm -hmm. before work Mm -hmm. and went to work. Mm -hmm. It ended up being an amazing experience, which, but I don't (laughs) recommend it. Do not recommend it, but for you, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's that. I appreciate the insight and honesty. I I ended up ending my career being a teacher evaluator. Our people that were going into teaching career, I went and evaluated their teaching skills and coached them. Mm -hmm. So I have to tell you, Mm -hmm. and some of them I'm sure are reading or have read my book. No, I don't recommend that at all. Not at all. Um, <laughs> Not the long-term effect you were looking for. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I was looking for self-destruction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you didn't know knew, why, right? Because the suppressed, I didn't know why. the dissociation and the suppressing of memories 
you weren't aware of what that deep inner pain was. All you could see was the outside surface of the struggle and the turmoil you were going through. I could see it. I could feel it. I could wonder. I could continue to berate myself. And I had flashbacks, but I didn't know where that, what they came from. Mm-hmm. I wondered things like why in a conversation with my dad, when I asked to bring home a boyfriend, he called me a filthy slut and whore. Oh. And my mother just sat there. You know, I would wonder mm-hmm. about that. But I, in, what I did instead was I took on the accusations and I, I lived them even though I was, oh, had the wonderful occasion of, of meeting a man who is now my husband, although it, you may realize we, were, we did marry in our late 20s. We're, we were married 12 years. We divorced 12 years, and we're remarried now 13. Mm. Wow. And marrying him allowed me to begin to, to settle in, to feel some value, to feel love, even though we obviously had our struggles because we divorced. And that divorce came soon after, at 38, my memories surfaced. And they surfaced at a family, right after a family reunion, when Mm. I have two, two older sisters, and one of my older sisters asked me, in a whisper at the reunion, if I remembered any sexual abuse in oh. our family, her, her daughter was in therapy. And I told her no, very quickly, no. Now, it's interesting to note that I had been suicidal at that point and in therapy and bouncing around from one therapist to the next because I didn't feel like they knew what they were doing. Mm. It was really me. They kept trying to push for me to talk about my family. I wouldn't even fill out the forms. Wow. Uh, I was on one antidepressant after another, and I would just switch and go to a different therapist and psychiatrist. Wow. So what then happened two days later is that my memory surfaced. Wow. Okay. And it was, I didn't know what was going on. And then it became supremely confusing. They surfaced on a Sunday. I saw my therapist on Monday. And when they surfaced, I was with my husband, which was very helpful because I I wanted to hurt myself. Mm. And he kept me from doing that. When I saw her, for me, it's a slow thing as the memories were coming back. And she helped me to realize what was going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But they continued coming up you know it was a little bit more a little bit more a little Mm -hmm. bit more that i believe is why people say experts because i'm only an expert on my story Mm -hmm. why the experts say that that when memory surface it is as traumatic if not more traumatic than when the sexual abuse actually occurred Mm -hmm. and i i certainly found that because it was so confusing so random when things would come up, they would be prompted by a, a smell, a sound, a, something I saw, mm-hmm. uh, a taste, yeah. uh, a touch, and I became hypersensitive. And so from that time to this time, just jumping and I'll go back mm-hmm. to fill in that very important time, I've, I've remained hypersensitive. Yeah. But I've I've learned to appreciate it mm. so that I let my little girl know that I'm paying attention to her mm. and that I love okay. her 
and that I believe her. That's so, so, so good. I think that's something we, we don't want to look at her or him, the little one inside of us who was hurt at such an mm-hmm. early age and didn't have a voice or wasn't believed. And as an adult, to now be able to speak to that inner child and um, and remind her of those things, that I think is crucial to our healing process. And we don't talk about it enough. And I think when we feel mm-hmm. out of control with the hypersensitivity or the triggers or flashbacks, you know, we can feel crazy. But it's just because I think our inner child is trying to speak to us. And it's it's not a bad thing. It's a matter mm-hmm. of going backwards and speaking the truth and the compassion and the comfort to that little one who was hurting and validate it, right? Absolutely. And, of course, my mother also told me I was crazy. And then my father who before my memories come up, apologized one time to me. I didn't know what he was talking about, but it was very bizarre and it was very concrete. Mm -hmm. He apologized for what he had done and he sometimes didn't feel like he was really who he was, uh, something along those lines. Then later he said he didn't know what I was talking about. So that denial by the perpetrators, and I say perpetrators because I, I believe my mother was complicit. She knew what was going on. Yeah. That denial really produces so much doubt and harm. I felt it right away. I said, how can these things be true from so long ago? How did I not remember? Mm. How do I, I know they're true? And that was something that for me, I needed the help and guidance of a therapist. And I really recommended, although I will say that, you know, not every therapist I saw was helpful. I had to develop my own qualifiers for who I would begin to work with, which required getting referrals and talking to people about how that person was. Yeah, but that well, I think was that's the right very thing to helpful. do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think there are probably newer ways of uh, getting therapy I haven't experienced yet, like mm-hmm. somatic experiencing. I want to try okay. because I I still work with these, but. Having a therapist and then developing other tools for my survival was very important. I couldn't always find a therapist. And in my life, we moved. So I'd find someone, leave her or him, and then we moved. And then it was, I was also teaching. And by then, I was teaching high school and had huge student loads because I taught in public schools that were we called inner city back then. Now they call them urban schools. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had student loads up to 180 a day. And and I had a stepson I was raising. And, wow. um, you know, I had laundry to do and groceries to get and lessons to plan. And I couldn't deal with my memories. Yeah, well, I it's because I've even found in my own healing journey, because like you, I kind of suppressed everything and did life. And then all of a sudden in college, I'm like drinking and smoking pot. And I'm like, OK, something's going on. And then I was able to finally look at those memories. Mm-hmm. But it's you need that time out, but there's no time out available. So it's like you're trying to operate limping while doing life and trying to heal at the same time. It's such a weird dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Need a timeout. That's a great way. Of- yeah. <laughs> it's really important when those memories start coming up and limping along is still surviving and helping me. You know, I had to go back to suppressing and numbing. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Because I couldn't 
couldn't get through. So mm-hmm. I see that trajectory of victim, anybody that's child's a victim, and then you your memories come up and you find ways to survive. And then, you know, you find that those memories are so difficult that you become a, a victim again. You're a victim mm-hmm. of all those memories. And yeah. I was. I'll speak sure. for myself. No, but I think I that's be- validating it because what happened was real and you didn't know about mm-hmm. it. So it's like if you're a survivor of sexual abuse and you're now getting a new memory, it's like this is the first time you're actually knowing about it as an adult. So you are a victim of mm-hmm. that. And it's going back to exactly. begin to start over again. And you say... For you, therapy and lifelong journaling have helped you the most to the learning to trust yourself again and learning to trust your own memories. I think that's a really powerful part of the healing journey as adult survivors. Yeah, journaling has been something I started when I was a child. And um, so I'm a chronic journaler. And there are places to rant and rave. They're not therapy necessarily. They're just, I mean, I guess that can be therapy. Um, They're not literary pieces. I can tell you that. Uh, I did end up doing my research uh, in journaling, professional reflective journaling, Mm -hmm. which I thought, well, how, if this helps me personally, how could it help me professionally to write about my days as a teacher and, and my individual students to see if it helped me to understand them? So yes, obviously my journaling personal journaling was help me, helping me to understand myself, but even my own personal experiences went across the, the boundaries of being a teacher because, of course, a lot of my students were traumatized for yeah. a variety of reasons, and it helped me to be sensitive to their exper- life experiences, not just what they were producing in the classroom, mm-hmm. and that that intensified my own uh, refl- personal reflections. Mm-hmm. I would add that another thing that helped me a lot during those years um, after my memories came up and I was in and out of therapy and trying to survive and then reaching places where I was thriving and then sabotaging again and and reaching a place now where I feel like I'm a pretty consistent thriver. Yeah. And some of those things I still use, I found taking time to be in silence and doing silent retreat was very helpful. Um, it was scary. Mm. Yeah, to because, sit with yourself. <laughs> that oh, is hard. Mary exactly. can't do that. Trisha, <laughs> it is one of my biggest struggles yeah. ever. Yeah. Like I, It's funny we're talking about the inner child because I'm in the midst of another counseling cycle season of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to write uh-huh. a, a letter to my inner Mary and my little inner little Mary and uh, I sat in the hammock to write it and it was just like oh there's a mosquito oh look (laughs) at the trees which it's good to observe what's going on but sitting with my own thoughts and emotions are so it's so painful for me and that's why like you I got really good at numbing and I could just like use that and then I could come back to center and I would be okay for a while and then I would go back to numbing and then I would be okay but it's it's painful for me to sit with my own thoughts mm-hmm. for sure but you finished oh, that letter uh-huh. and that I did. was super powerful I for did. your healing Good yeah for you. I just yeah. had to keep Good at it <laughs> yeah but it is just interesting you know, for well, some of us um that it, it's painful just to be quiet with our with ourselves and part of it I think is we don't trust yeah. ourselves and it's yes. just a scary weird place yeah mm-hmm Well, add on top of it for Patricia, she was told so many 
horrible, evil lies about who she was mm-hmm. as a child. So I'm sure for you, Patricia, when you're silent, some of those awful names you recall, the lies that were spoken to you and the things that you believed about yourself as a result of the abuse or, or the abuse not being stopped, all of those things I think a lot of times can be louder than our own voice. And so through therapy and through journaling and through a relationship with a higher power, we're able to sort of finally replace those negative, horrible things um, with the truth of ourselves. But it takes quite a process to be able to sit with yourself and to learn that that change and that new, you know, becoming a butterfly, really, in your own healing journey. I want to make it. You didn't ask, Mary, but I just want to make a suggestion uh, yeah. for the, the listeners, too, that maybe taking silence in increments, you know, five minutes, mm-hmm. 10 mm-hmm. minutes, 15 minutes. And it may not be for everyone. I, I also think walking our prayers. I, yeah. I talk about that in my book. I I walk and, and say, for me, nature is is the biggest comfort. And yeah. um, I don't, that, and right? I want it. Yeah. I want to respond too to Nicole. Um, it's also important to me in my world. I don't think of what my parents did as evil. I, I, I don't call them evil. I don't condone what they did at all. But it's important for me to to recognize that their stories, uh, which were very different, led them to do what they did. Hmm. My mother. Um, she was from that time where being a wife was was illustrative of how successful she was, mm-hmm. and that was more important than really mothering her children, mm-hmm. being a good wife. And my dad had his own abuse, but I, I mm-hmm. developed compassion for them, which helps me um, meet every day, and it also helps me understand why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. It's I very gracious of you. Mm-hmm. I also developed self-compassion, which allows me to understand why I couldn't speak up and why I did what I did. And that works better for me. I also find great solace, not just in times in silence, which I mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, which I still find, but times in nature. And then, of course, I live in one of the most beautiful valleys in the world, yeah. high, yeah. high Alpine yes. Valley. Very and jealous. I, I see these mountain ranges, mm. two directions, and New Mexico's plateaus the other direction. Mm. I should say mountain ranges, three directions, actually. And it that uh, calms my, mm. my sadness and, yeah. and regret for my parents mm-hmm. and our lives. And then helps bring me into that place of, of compassion and and greater understanding. And then it helps me get out of my story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and think, how is my book, my story, affecting others? Because I hear from someone really every day, and you know it's so common. I, uh, common. I heard it on your one of your podcasts. One in three girls, one in six boys. Mm-hmm. One in ten children will be raped by the time they're eighteen. Mm-hmm. This is this is what we have to look at. How how can we change that? Right. What can we? How can we hold our own stories so that we're talking about things we want to change, and then moving forward to truly help victims and perpetrators? 
Absolutely. How do we help change the perpetrators? And mm-hmm. you two are doing doing this work, mm-hmm. which thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, but you know it's all about all of our voices coming together, and not one or two of us can do this this work alone. And so we're grateful for other voices out there like yours, Patricia to be able to, like you said, hold your own story and be able to communicate it in a way that makes a difference and it matters, whether it's within your small rural village (laughs) or on platforms like ours, we all need each other to be a voice in our own ways. And, you know, through your book, especially, Mm -hmm. I'm excited for it to impact other people. And I think what you said is very true about, you know, your place and your healing journey with your parents and the way that you can view them. I think that's amazing. And it shows so much maturity and healing that you've gone through. Um, But at the same time, I know there are many listeners who aren't there yet. And that's okay. I think it is a journey in there. For me, it's the same way. I had to get to a place um, before having any kind of compassion for any perpetrator in my life, I had to be angry at Mm -hmm. what they did. Me too. And that is part of that process. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. So for you to be able to be where you're at, you had to have the anger and call it what it was. And it was wrong Mm -hmm. and should never have happened, no matter what your perpetrator's journey looked like. Um, But you had to acknowledge that before you got to where you are. And so it's just honoring where everyone is at in their journey. And I'm grateful you're at where you are. And I know that there will be hard places Mm -hmm. ahead of you, but you've got the tools in your belt and people around you to help you through that next journey um, or that next place in your journey. I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. now that you've shared that about your relationship with your abusers, your mom and your dad in adulthood, Now, in your book, you talk about, you know, living with and caring for them when they were at the ends of their lives, right? I do. I don't recommend it. Ah, But honestly, Patricia. another thing I wouldn't recommend. Well, I get that. I know. I I honestly can't imagine being in that position. I don't think I could handle that. However, um, especially at this point when I'm not as much a people pleaser and I say no a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> easier than I used to. And I Good don't I D G A F. You probably don't know what that means. But okay. So moving forward, I I want to hear from you what it was like for you to do that because I will be honest, I have met many, many, many survivors in your position that have either been asked to do this to care for their elderly abuser you know, as they're in their deathbed or, or fighting cancer or whatever. And and these are, you know, fathers, stepfathers, grandfathers or grandmothers or whoever it is that never even confessed to what they did. And there was never any repairing or, or, you know, working through that or anything. It's just this is what happened. And I've dealt with this my whole life. And now I've got to care for this person because they're dying and there's no one else for them. I mean, you're not alone in what you've done there. And I think it's been a a hard path for many survivors to decide, am I going to do this because it feels like the right thing? Or am I not because I need to care for myself right now? It's a difficult road. And I just would love your insights, even though you don't (laughs) you don't recommend it for other survivors. I would like to hear, you know, what that was like for you and and how you kind of Mm -hmm. got through that. Well, I will skim along the top of what it was like, but I, I will say that um, that is a, a big section of my book, which um, I think can be helpful for people. 
Uh, Although I've read in reviews, one person wrote, I didn't really want to read so much about her taking care of her parents. And I thought, well, maybe that's because you didn't have that that choice. Mm -hmm. I chose to do that. uh, And and I'll say I was in my late 50s. I think I was about 56 or Mm -hmm. 7. And chose it for primarily because I wanted to write this book. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to move right into the nest of where it was. I also had a had a spouse who we talked about it and who was willing to do that with me. So I had that support, and that was very important. I would have would not have done it without my spouse. Mm. And that was another reason we did it. He had just had a second heart attack, and it had put us in a financial conundrum, and uh, I needed to be in a place where we really cut down on our finances. So I was able to, to get a home that both my parents and we could live in together and had a plan, and it didn't go as planned. Um, but what happened was, I would say again, I wouldn't be where I am right now had we not done that. I would not have written the book, mm-hmm. I don't believe, but I don't know that, but I don't think I, I wrote half of it while we were there, and we only lasted two years. We thought we'd be there three to five. Mm-hmm. And, um, Ended up very early on. Well, again, I want to emphasize that I ended up writing half the book because I just rolled out of bed into my office chair, which was right next to my bed, and started writing every morning. I did hire a writing coach who really helped me um, Mm -hmm. go for the hardest memories of a memoir. And I would often send him a story, and he would write back and go, you know, what would the story look like if you weren't trying to make yourself look good? Mm. Wow. And I thought, oh, I didn't know I was doing that. <laughs> but it was a way of keeping myself away from the hard spots. Yeah. To not really revealing how it had been for me, how reckless I'd been, mm. or, you know, just really painting my over-sexualized behavior, or, or it's just how I felt about many of the risks mm. that I took. So... Early on in us living with my parents, my father ended up in a psychiatric facility. He had mental health problems anyway. They just Mm -hmm. weren't diagnosed until later. And then I was able to get him in a veteran's home, and then we lived with my mother by herself. But she had Lewy bodies Alzheimer's, which is where you hallucinate a lot. We ended up getting her in a facility, and my husband and I were worn down. We were... We were worn to the bone. Yeah. I can imagine. And we ended up limping, since you were talking about limping earlier, yeah. limping back to Colorado, but we chose a little town that we could, it had a low socioeconomic level that was beautiful, mm-hmm. where we could find something affordable and live. Mm-hmm. And it took me until 2017, we moved here in 2012 to pick up my book again and finish it. And I did finish it in uh, seven months. And so that, and by the way, Mary, you won't like this part. I took took myself to a monastery that I really like in the (laughs) South, (laughs) Christ in the Desert Monastery. And I did eight days of silence, which really helped me. No, didn't mean I didn't. I'd had to drink or something. I mean, I yeah, Mm, yeah. I would have had a little bottle. Really wouldn't shut up. (laughs) Exactly. That would not be your deal. No, but it's a beautiful place. But good for you. (laughs) 
and uh, that's where I went to really begin laying the groundwork again. And, and it was interesting. One of the things that I did, okay, now I left my parental story. Uh, I'll come back. But one of the things I did at the monastery was I made a timeline on trifold boards of my life. And on it, I came up with a list of things that I was going to note that ranged from everywhere I'd lived, every dog I'd had, every person I'd been intimate with, uh, every drug experience, every death, every birth, every job I'd had, and on and on. And it, it, took, it, it was full. Of course, you know, I, at that point, I was 65. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was amazing. It was uh, oh, overwhelming to look at. And from that, I began filling in my story. But I'll, so I just wanted to mention that the monastery was a great place to do that. I could fold <laughs> it down on the uh, one of the twin beds. <laughs> but my parents uh, died in 2012 and 2015 and neither recanted their denials okay. uh, my mother and I um, in one of the ta- last times I saw her had a very heated discussion around it all where she maintained her innocence and um, and yet I talked to her about it and that's in the book and then I do talk about the last few times I was with both of my parents. Uh, the last times I saw them before they died, I was in Colorado when, when they died. Mm. Um, but I'm glad that I saw them okay. uh, beforehand. I'm glad that I had the opportunity to be with them. And here's, here's a really important thing that I want survivors to know and perpetrators. Perpetrators numb and dissociate and suppress memories just like survivors do Hmm. so that they can survive. My parents did it so that they could survive upon the belief that they were, had done a, a good job and provided for their children, which they did. They provide, we had, I had food, Mm -hmm. They provided for us and then suppressed anything, even suppressed their own um, violent, angry mm-hmm. relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. Although at the end, they had to be separated because mm-hmm. my father had tried to injure my mother and me when we were living with them, which is why he was put into a psychiatric facility. Yeah, But they... They deny those things so that they can live. Yeah, in some form of narcissism, I believe, for perpetrators. Yeah, that's right. It is. Good point. And I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that we all, you know, we all do what we can to survive, and we all build our stories in ways I think survivors do before they remember their memories, build our own stories in ways that help us survive. Because it is hard for the memories to come up, and it is hard to learn how to manage the doubts and the accusations and disbelief of others. Mm-hmm. And it's excruciating, actually. But what I found is I'm able to hold those things now mm-hmm. with a compassion for myself and an ability to experience joy because I quit Mm. 
pushing those memories down. Mm-hmm. That yeah. holding my voice in kept me from feeling living life as fully as I now am able to live it. And I think people can do that at a lot younger age mm-hmm. than I did. Yeah, and I think uh, you're being willing to find your voice now and lending it to others in the form of your memoir, Being Mean, is you allowing and enabling younger survivors to do that earlier. You're you're saying, I, you know, this is a beautiful journey for you, but it could have started earlier and you're 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 empowering others to to find that themselves. I think that's wonderful. I do. Mm-hmm. I do. And it's, it is very important. And you know, just for your listeners, just taking the time to listen to this, taking the time to read a book, you know, those are steps towards change. That's because that that prompts a lot of feelings from people, mm-hmm. and those those feelings and those steps are very important. Yeah, yeah. I, there's a section in my book that I feel like uh, explains this a little bit. This is in the epilogue, so in the final pages of my book, I say, coming into my 65th year, I question what carries my life story forward. Why am I unable to let my history be? Why not keep my sexual abuse memories to myself and let bygones be bygones? Why would I chance be smearing the memory of my parents with what I recall from so long ago, things my mother adamantly denied? As the fog rolled in during my teens, 20s, and 30s, I could no longer see what had happened to me as a child, nor where I was going as an adult. But that did not stop me or slow me down. I forged ahead, periodically believing that somehow, someday, I might see through the obscurity and with determination figure things out. Mm. And, and the shame I felt about my life, I'm not sure what impacted me most. The shame I gradually began to feel from sexual abuse as a young girl or the shame I felt from decisions I made as a maturing young woman. Mm -hmm. As I grew older, my feelings were frequently out of control, whirlwinds of emotion that left those around me dizzy and confused from my intense and manic swirls of energy. My life was helter-skelter. I lurched forward, teetering on precipices and daring myself to fall off. An abundance of careless living and a reckless, frantic energy kept me on the the move. A tsunami was building, rolling along and grumbling deep in the ocean of my life. There was no way I could have fathomed how such confusion about love and sex and intimacy and boundaries would place my life at risk over and over again. And one, two short sentences here at the end. Mm -hmm. I want perpetrators to understand how deeply harmful it is for a victim when they deny what they have done or convince themselves that what they have done didn't actually hurt anyone. I say, let a perpetrator's denial be questioned more fiercely than a victim who finally finds her or his voice and speaks the unspeakable. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's powerful there, Patricia. Goodness, thank you for sharing your words with us and your story and 
I think you're you're really going to make a difference in a lot of people's lives and help all of us to turn the tide here when it comes to the stigma of sexual abuse. And I will say, don't listen to those stupid reviews that when people <laughs> tell you that they don't want to hear a piece of your story, it's not for them to make your story fit what they want or what their needs are. <laughs> you know, your vulnerability and your yeah. truth is what matters. And you don't have to make your story pretty for anybody else. I have plenty of people oh, tell me. Been told. Oh, well, good. Good for you. Yep. You can't you can't package your story. Your story is what it is, just like everyone else's is. So that's right. Keep going, that's sister. Right. Thank you so much for coming on today. We're we're really excited to be able to share you with our audience and for anyone listening that wants more information to read this book that Patricia Eagle has put out. It's called Being Mean: A Memoir of Sexual Abuse and Survival. Also, people can go to my website, which is patriciaeagle.com, and find links for the book. Thank you both, Mary and Nicole. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked. Even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.